Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. It's the day after the federal Martin Luther King Jr. holiday and the day when Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said that the upper chamber will take up federal voting rights legislation, by which we all know Chuck Schumer to actually mean that the federal voting rights legislation will not be taken up by the United States Senate because of the filibuster brought to bear by the Republicans in the Senate who are eager, in fact committed, to stopping federal voting rights legislation from being passed. So the plan is, in theory, to then move on to reforming the filibuster, which we also know is going nowhere because not only are Republicans against reforming the filibuster at this moment, but Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema also have stated their emphatic opposition to changes, reform, scrapping, really doing anything about the filibuster. This is a sorry state of affairs, to be sure, and to talk it over and what it means for the Biden presidency and the Democratic Party more broadly, we have with us today one of the most important and influential progressives in the country and one of the smartest and savviest people in politics, full stop. The president and CEO of the Center for American Progress, my old friend, Patrick Gaspard. The state of our union is perilous, damn perilous. Not as bad as the polling would suggest, but as bad as we feel at the level of community. Uh, and so I'm excited to have a conversation about what that means and how we fix it. Before taking over as the head of CAP last year, Patrick Gaspard had compiled one of the most accomplished resumes in the contemporary Democratic Party. Born in Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo, to Haitian parents, Patrick moved to New York City at the age of three, went to Brooklyn Tech, and then to Columbia University. In 1988, he worked on Jesse Jackson's campaign for the Democratic nomination, trying to create the first African-American Democratic nominee. The next year, he worked for David Dinkins, a successful campaign that made him the first African-American mayor of New York City. From then on, Patrick was a mainstay in New York politics, working in and around City Hall, serving for nearly a decade as the executive director of one of the most powerful local unions in America, the 1199 SEIU, the Healthcare Workers Union on the east side of New York. In 2007, Patrick helped secure the SEIU's pivotal endorsement of Barack Obama's bid for the Democratic nomination in the 2008 campaign. He later joined the Obama team in Chicago, became political director of Obama's general election effort, and then moved on to become the director of the White House Office for Political Affairs, from 2009 to 2011, 2011 to 2013, moved on up and became the executive director of the Democratic National Committee. And then from 2013 to 2016, he served as the United States ambassador to South Africa. After returning home and serving for three years as the president of George Soros's Open Society Foundations, Patrick took over as the head of CAP in June of 2021. All of which is to say that Patrick Gaspard is, in addition to being a bone-deep progressive, also a hard-eyed operator and political realist. And that is why I couldn't think of a better person to have with us on the podcast to talk about whether voting rights and filibuster reform are as dead in the water as they seem, and if they are, what that means for the party for 2022, 2024, and beyond, about whether Joe Biden's presidency is really as thoroughly stalled or worse as the conventional wisdom is loudly declaring it to be, and about whether his fellow Democrats on both the left and in the center, who are currently in a state of total panic about the party's prospects in this year's midterm elections, are right, or maybe wrong, to be freaking out so comprehensively 
in the way that they are. I also wanted to talk with Patrick about the legacies of both Martin Luther King Jr. and Nelson Mandela, two icons he admires greatly, idealists who, like Patrick himself, were also political realists, and whether, even in these very dark days, Patrick still has faith, as Mandela always said, that we are making a long march toward freedom, and as Dr. King did, that the long arc of that moral universe is still bending towards justice, even as it takes a hairy detour through this time of hell and high water. So I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be the sign, the sign of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be the sign of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be the sign of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? This is the moment to decide to defend our elections, to defend our democracy. First of all, Patrick, good to see you. It's great to see you. It's been too long since we've been face-to-face, and, and I miss you, brother. You were like one of my favorite lunchtime companions, mostly because now that you're rich, you pay, which I like. Which... <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You're the one with the best-selling books, man. You're the rich guy in this podcast, brother. Yeah, It's good yeah. to see you. I'm going to look at the CAP annual report and find out what your salary is. It's going to be shocking. You used to work for George Soros, so let's not even talk. Um, so here's the thing. That's a big moment, right? It's like... Yeah, Biden goes to Georgia. Kamala Harris goes to Georgia. They do these big speeches. First of all, just tell me there was a lot of controversy about that line that we just played, which is like yep. really stark. You know, whose side are you on? Over here, you got Dr. King, John Lewis, and Abraham Lincoln. Those are the right answers. Those are the good answers, right? <laughs> the other side, Wallace, Bull Connor, and Jefferson Davis. Some people took exception to that and thought it was overstated. Dick Durbin did. Others did. What did you make of the speech and what did you make of that dramatic a, a line drawing that Biden did in particular? So because it's your podcast, because this is hella high water, I know that I got to come with some simple truths here and can't really spin you. So a couple couple of things. Thought the speech was fire. Absolutely loved the conviction, the vision and determination to just go and get this thing done. But I am going to agree with a lot of my activist friends, not only in Georgia, but all around the country who felt that that speech was a few months too late, that we should have been having this conversation in a much more robust way some months ago and laying out the tracks of the the crisis that we're in, the resolve to get something done and to put earlier pressure on all of our senators uh, to like stand up on all 10 toes and declare where they're at. So I, I agree with a lot of my activist friends on sequencing, timing, et cetera. The speech itself I thought was righteous and deepest respect to anyone who's taking offense at it. I'm sick and tired of us having conversation about our politics in this moment from the perspective of the hurt feelings of some Republican senators who aren't going to be with Joe Biden anyway, no matter how nice he is. I heard the Dick Durbin interview. He, you know, he wasn't really taking exception. He was pressed by, I think it was Jake Tapper. And he said, well, you know, maybe the president uh, went a little too far out on his skis. I'm going to defend the president's language uh, on this and say that when you've got not just in 2020, 2021, but a multi-year effort by Republicans that didn't just start with Donald Trump to degrade outcomes in elections, to stand up barriers to participation, and then to weaponize the big lie that's been uh, advanced by Trump. First, to propose 400 bills in 49 states and to pass laws in 19 states that are profoundly restrictive and take us back decades in voting rights. 
president's not wrong to say that this is a crisis that puts us right back in the slipstream of what you know their predecessors wanted for America. So I'm I'm with Joe Biden on this one. I'm sticking with my president. Well, okay. So that maybe not the most surprising thing in the world. You stick with your president in this case, and obviously on the merits of this, you and I are in agreement, right? So on on the merits, I'm not trying to drive division, anger, and hate here, but I'm not an activist. I've never worked in the Democratic Party. I've never worked on a campaign. I've never done any of those things. I'm just like a humble observer of politics. And if I recall right, when you were working for Barack Obama, when the Affordable Care Act was the most important thing in the world to the administration and to the president, he talked about it almost every day. For more than a year, he talked about it almost every day. Not literally every day, but rarely did a week go by where Barack Obama did not do something to try to advance the cause of the Affordable Care Act. So I've seen what a Democratic president looks like when something is his highest priority. Joe Biden gave one speech on this matter in his first year in office and in, in all of 2021. It was a good speech. It was in July. And and then he didn't really talk about it very much. And I, I commented on it all along. I'm like, he says this is like the new Jim Crow, that this is the threat to the cornerstone, the foundations of American democracy. If that's true. What are you doing giving one speech about it in a year? And again, I'm not an activist. I'm just someone who's seen presidents who care about something really go out and fight yeah. for it. I mean, do you take that point? I mean, I know you just said you agree with activists, but I think from a political director standpoint, something you've done a fair amount of in your life, you might be like, yeah, I mean, if we wanted to defy the odds and break these bad numbers in the Senate, we're going to have to do more than this. Yeah, but, you know, John, you may not have ever worked on a campaign or for a political party, but you know exactly what it's like for people who are serving inside of that West Wing. You come into office, you have this notion that you've got a vision, you're going to be able to own and drive an agenda through your presidency, or at least through the first hundred days of the presidency. And then all right. of a sudden, you discover that sitting in the White House is really like holding on to the tail of a comet. And you don't really get to set the agenda, dictate the pace right. of it. This is a president who walks in already uh, under really tough conditions with an unprecedented, disastrous pandemic that he's inherited the management of from a reckless predecessor. Yep. And he works immediately to get 200 million shots in the arms of Americans. He's got to like revive the entire service sector in America, helps to push and create uh, an environment where six million jobs are created and passes a stimulus package, John, let's not forget, that manages to lower childhood poverty in America by 50%. These are not small things. And then on top of that, he says, you know, I'm going to give you a little bit of extra cheese with that. And he passes a bipartisan infrastructure bill that that his predecessors couldn't pass and no one thought that we'd manage to, to get through. And he does all of that despite the fact, John, that he was sworn in in a Washington, D.C., that required him to have the Capitol penned off, that looked like a war zone. We had military all over the, the yes, bloody place. So right. I hear you. And, you know, I, and as I said, I do agree with activists that there are things that we could have done to more properly sequence the moment and put more pressure on Dems, Republicans, et cetera. He did have the reality, John, all along that it's a 50-50 Senate and he right. needed mansion and cinema for all of those other things that I just described. So there's more than a little sympathy uh, that I have for the circumstances that he found himself in. So look, those are all strong points. And I want to later talk in the podcast about, about how the Biden administration in toto. But what we agree, right, that this voting rights thing, not just in terms of voter suppression, but voter subversion, voter nullification, these laws that are being passed are a, a fundamental threat to American democracy, number one. And number two, I believe we would agree that they're also in, in the shorter term, a fundamental threat to, to Democrats advancing their agenda. You know, if, they, if Democrats are going to keep holding office, they got to do something about this problem, right? Yeah. 
So I guess my question is, do you think, and again, we're going to get to Schumer, the filibuster, what's happening here, but mm-hmm. but did you think that even with the expressions that you had just now, you sided with activists, said he should have done more, should have done it sooner, sequencing wasn't right, you said the speech was fire on substance, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think he did anything to appreciably alter the actual math and to make the likelihood of securing federal voting rights legislation more likely in any time frame that we would possibly care about. So I think, you know, speeches matter, symbols matter. And that one is for the moment, but also for the ages, because this is going to be a debate that's uh, ongoing. And he stood up and said, just like Ghostface, I can't cope with the pressure of settling for lesser. We're going to get something done on this one. And of course, because it is a 50-50 Senate with Manchin and Cinema, it's not a surprise to you and I that one or the other of them was going to like muck things up. So materially, you have to say that irrespective of that speech, despite the president coming to Capitol Hill to talk to the Dem caucus, it's pretty clear that he didn't move the needle with the two votes that he needs more than others. But I will say, I will say that it's clear that there are a number of moderates in the Senate, like John Tester of uh, Montana, who have been reluctant to move on the filibuster who have been really animated by the president's language, the president's conviction, by the crisis that they see in front of them, who are now saying it's not enough to say that you're for this bill, but against filibuster reform. And you have the John Testers of the world stepping forward and saying, I'm ready to vote for this thing. So the president has been effective in moving the needle, just can't nail those two votes that he needs from Arizona and... West Virginia. I'm going to play a little sound in a second. You mentioned Republicans and people who were- Only when I have to, John. I know, I know. It's always only with a gun to your head, a metaphorical gun to your head. (laughs) Look, I mean, like Mitch McConnell getting on the Senate floor and like, you know, wailing and gnashing about- The president's rant, rant yesterday was incoherent, incorrect, and beneath his office. He invoked the bloody disunion of the Civil War, the Civil War, to demonize Americans who disagree with him. He compared, listen to this, a bipartisan majority of senators to literal traitors. How profoundly, profoundly unprecedented. Look, I've known, liked, and personally respected Joe Biden for many years. I did not recognize the man at the podium yesterday. Oh, just shut the fuck up. (laughs) But here's a question for you. I heard from progressives. I heard from progressive activists and progressive politicians and, you know, people like Mark Elias in the days immediately leading up to the speech and after saying, well, maybe there's a Republican vote out there. Maybe we can't get Manchin and Cinema. Maybe there's some Republican. And, you know, we saw the DNC decide to start calling out Republicans who voted for the voting rights reauthorization yeah. a few years back. And now we're against it. Right. So did you and do you think there is any hope of peeling off one Republican vote for voting rights legislation? Sean. All the people who are who, who said that before the vote and after the vote need to remember that Joe Manchin, eight months ago, eight months ago, Joe Manchin comes out and he says, we're going to craft a compromise between Democrats and Republicans. I'm going to spend the summer into the fall trying to cobble together my gang of 10 Republicans who are going to be for voting rights. Right. What did Joe Manchin come back with? 
a handful of dust. Yeah. Didn't get a single Republican on board. Right. So if Joe Manchin couldn't do that with months, months of a long on-ramp, Joe Biden was not going to accomplish that in January of this year. Right. So folks need to just kind of get off their high horses right. with this notion that Joe Biden somehow hurt the feelings of oh, no, Mitt I, I, Romney I, or some other folks who might have come on board. That's just not real. Just to be clear, I'm not saying they said that he hurt the feelings of them. I'm saying like yeah. just the, the notion of was there any. No. Forget about the speech you gave, no. but your view is there was no opening for, there was no reason to, there was just 0.0% chance that any Republican could be brought across. Lisa Murkowski, nobody, zero, no chance. That's your view. That's why we're here, John. Okay. It's not my view. No. It is it well, is materially evident. You know, Joe Manchin worked a year on this and got nothing. As you know, I, I regard you as one of the smartest people in politics. You're too kind. But but I will say that some other smart people in, in politics on your side, yeah. Democrats, were like, well, maybe there's a strategy that could work there. Again, not necessarily asking Biden to prevaricate or soften, but just saying, like, maybe there's a way to pull it across because Manchin and Cinema were clearly not going to get there. But I want to play Mitt Romney here just yeah. because it's, I think it's a revealing of something I want to talk about. So let's play Mitt Romney. Speaking on the Senate floor on, on the same day that Biden spoke in Atlanta, mm-hmm. reacting with deep hurt, sorrow and chagrin. Let's play Mitt Romney. President Biden goes down the same tragic road taken by President Trump, casting doubt on the reliability of American elections. This is a sad, sad day. Most Republicans believe that Donald Trump, they believe his lie that the 2020 election was fraudulent, stolen by Democrats. That's almost half the country. Can you imagine the anger that would be ignited if they see Democrats alone rewrite with no Republican involvement whatsoever the voting laws of the country? If you want to see division and anger, the Democrats are heading down the right road. So I want to ask you a question, an interesting and not like just a kind of beat this over the head with a partisan sledgehammer question, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of Democrats and a lot of people who forget about Democrats, a lot of people who care about democracy, about the survival of democracy in America right now. And Mitt Romney, to his credit, is one of those people. Correct. And many people have looked at the Mitt Romneys of the world and said, you know, I disagree with Mitt Romney about a lot of things, but he's on team democracy, right? He got chased through the Senate, was with this close to getting getting dead on January 6th. Mm-hmm. You know, people look at Liz Cheney and they say, you know, I disagree with her about almost everything. But like, I think she really cares about this. She's fighting the good fight. Right. Yep. But here's my question is that if you're Mitt Romney and you are, I think, a good person, a person who, who cares about democracy, a person who is on team democracy, a person who has cast some tough votes, who's taken on Donald Trump, who does not like Donald Trump, hates him, loathes him, thinks he's bad for the party, wishes he was gone, wishes he could flip a switch and make Donald Trump go away. The stuff he's saying in this speech is maybe not as bad as what Trump and the Trumpists do, but it's pretty insidious to get up and and a be totally shut down to considering any voting rights legislation b to be totally against any talking about reforming the filibuster c to compare joe biden to donald trump and to basically say you know republicans think the election was stolen and if democrats do anything they're just going to drive more division it's not openly authoritarian but it's pretty bad in terms of posing a giant roadblock to any kind of progress and to actually doing what Mitt Romney says he wants to do, which is save the republic. Do you agree or not? <laughs> I, <laughs> I agree with everything that you just said, John. A hundred percent, right down the line. That's why you're here, Patrick. Thank you for that. Now I understand why I was picked. Yeah. 
I, I respect Mitt Romney. I appreciate the positions that he took when Donald Trump appealed to the worst elements in this country. You know, I'll tell you a little anecdote, John. I remember a few weeks out from Election Day in 2012, there were half a dozen of us in a conversation with President Obama. Uh, we were reviewing the polling numbers around the country and laid out to him why we were you know, fairly confident that we had baked in a, a story about Mitt Romney in middle America and thought that we would win the election. After the presentation, he looks around at us and he says, you know, I'm pretty competitive and I don't want Mitt Romney getting credit for the tough choices that I did that will give us economic prosperity in the future. But if I should lose, we'll be okay. Mitt Romney is a good and decent man. And even in the areas where we disagree, one can find some common cause. I can't imagine Barack Obama or anyone else in our circle saying the same thing in 2016 and the same thing in 2020. Why do I lay that up? Because I see Mitt Romney as someone who actually knows better. Right. He has the perspective of history. He comes from a family where you know his father made tough choices, tough decisions around the Civil Rights Act, around voter reform, around expansion of the access to the ballot. So Mitt Romney, he knows that history and he understands exactly the pernicious strategy that Republicans have employed here. So it's beyond disingenuous for him to stand up and compare Joe Biden and Joe Biden's language to the worst offenses of a president who incited a bloody, murderous insurrection in the Capitol and somebody whose big lie is already leading to disastrous outcomes in Georgia, in Florida, in Montana, in Texas, in Iowa on voting reform. So Mitt Romney's being disingenuous and he's being minoritarian. Yes. Right. So the Republican leadership is absolutely minoritarian right now. They're trying to bake in right. an advantage that will allow folks who got less than the popular vote uh, across the country, less than the accumulated power that they think they should have in the Senate, uh, allowing that minority to dictate to the majority of Americans who are for these reforms. So respectfully to Mitt Romney, he's, he's just he's just full of it here, man. Again, no one wants to say that team democracy Republicans who are sensibly on team democracy in the sense that they don't want authoritarianism. They, they say they don't want it. They don't want autocracy. They don't want Trump. They won't want Trumpism. But if they're still in favor of allowing these Republican voter suppression, voter subversion, voter nullification, they're here for the tax cuts, John. They're here for the tax cuts, man. We talk about all these laws that are being passed in state by state that are voter suppression, voter nullification, voter subversion laws on the front end of the ballot box and the back end of the ballot box. Yep. We talk about them. Mitt Romney does not want to change those laws. And so it's like, well, you're anti-authoritarian, you're anti-autocracy, you're anti-Trump, but you're still on the side of voter suppression, voter subversion, voter nullification. Effectively, if you're willing to lump in Joe Biden with, with Donald Trump and you're willing not to cast a vote to do anything about those laws. Yep. The sum and substance of it is you're a Trump ally if that's your posture. Yep. Well, you know, you said it far better than I possibly could about Mitt Romney. Uh. Mitt Romney had an opportunity this summer to stand up and say, I'm for the John Lewis Act. I'm for these voter reforms. Let's like figure this out together in the way that he did on infrastructure, for instance, in the way that he's now stepping forward and saying, you know what, I got to work with Democrats on chip manufacturing because we've got to blunt China's edge, right? So he has the wherewithal to get there on things that he believes are existential for the democracy. 
And if he truly, truly believed in these reforms, he would have stepped forward. Instead, now we hear his voice yelling, yelling yeah. from the silence. Mm. Now we hear his voice lecturing Joe Biden on authoritarianism. It's it's hogwash. So here's so here's let me ask you about another United States senator. OK, you're just trying to get me riled up, aren't you? Ah, well, you're, you're not you're not that hard to get riled when we talk about topics like this. Here's another United States senator of your acquaintance, uh, a man named Charles Schumer. Senate Majority Leader. Okay, I just want you right now to give me a letter grade on Chuck Schumer as Majority Leader right now for the Democrats. How's he done as Majority Leader in his first year in that job? You know, you're you. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna play that game, John. You know that I'm a that I'm a New Yorker. He's my senator. This is the guy who nominated me to go to South Africa. I've worked with him when he was a New York legislator or in Congress, and and now in the the U.S. Senate. I'm just gonna say. I'm not playing letter grades. I think that he's been an exceptional majority <laughs> leader. You don't get the infrastructure bill done. You don't get the stimulus done. You don't get us to where we're at on maintaining protections on ACA when he was the minority leader in the Senate. You don't get that stuff done if you're not grade A, right? So, so you're giving him an A then is why I heard you say. I'm not playing. I'm, I just, I, wow. I'm not good at that. I am being clear on all the exceptional things that I believe Senator Schumer has done both when he was in the minority and in the majority, I will tell you that I joined with activists in saying that I think our democratic leadership should have been more muscular in taking on voting rights earlier and should not have given Joe Manchin months and months and months to kind of run out the clock and play four corners with his group of Republicans. That's a critique across the board at Democratic leadership. Let it be known for the record that when Patrick B. Gasper was, was thrown an alley-oop pass that could have been an easy slam dunk, all he had to do was say, A+. plus. He just said, I don't want the ball. Don't throw me the I ball. I just don't like to play I that think... game. I, you know, every, every now and then I could be like Russell Westbrook and I could make an easy layup really complicated. Yeah, and I just speaks. did that. <laughs> <laughs> speaks, speaks volumes, my friend. I'm smart <laughs> enough not to ask you a hypothetical because I know what you'll say, which is, I don't engage in hypothetical. So I'm not going to ask you the hypothetical of like, well, what happens if Build Back Better doesn't pass? I'm not going to do that. Here, I'm going to ask you two very concrete things about two politicians. I'm going to ask you to like, just give me a, a read on them. Um, here's one of them. Stacey Abrams last week was on with Seth Meyers. She did not somehow, for whatever reason, don't really understand it, did not make an appearance with Joe Biden when he went to Georgia. I don't know. People uh, kibitz about that. Uh, she says there was nothing to read into it. Others say otherwise. But in any case, she found time to be on Seth Meyers last week. And Seth asked her, basically said, Hey, how does it feel to be down there when you got this Donald Trump endorsed uh, primary challenger who you thought you were going to be running as Brian Kemp? Now there's this whole crazy primary happening on the Republican side. They're throwing mud at each other. What do you think about that? And Stacey Abrams answered the question and also talked a little bit about her own race. So I want to listen to that. and We'll talk about Stacey Abrams on the other side. There is a proverb that I have completely appropriated and twisted a little bit. And it says, when elephants fight, stay off the grass. I'm, I'm focusing on Georgia and I'm running on possibility. I know it is possible for us to get healthcare for Georgians. I know it's possible for us to fully fund education. I know it's possible for us to acknowledge the pain people are, people are feeling economically, but build a stronger economic future. We cannot ignore the real pain that people feel today, but part of the responsibility of leadership is to set a vision for what's to come. And that's what I'm gonna run on. So I asked you, Patrick, about this, you know, she basically at this moment, at least is like, I don't want to get drawn into this whole shit show yeah. of yeah. Uh, Republican inner party. But that race is going to be nationalized. It was nationalized in 2018. She knows that. Stacey is that. the smartest person that we have in Democratic politics, period. Of course. They're one of the smartest people that I've ever met. So do you think the nationalization of that race 
And again, I want to have a hardcore political conversation about it. I mean, I, I look, it's going to be a very close race. We know that yep. but there's going to be national focus on it. Does that help her? At the moment, obviously, she wants to be she's always going to do is talk about Georgia. But in terms of the fundraising and a lot of other things, this is going to be a national profile race, just like the Texas governor's race. Does that help her? Is that a challenge? Is that an asset? How do you think about that if you're running Stacey Abrams's campaign? How do you get the best out of that nationalization and try to stay away from the worst where it seems like you're just like a poster woman for national Democrats yeah, and not yeah. what a lot of Georgians want, yeah. which is a really good governor? I love that she was using an, uh, an East African proverb. The proverb actually is when elephants fight, the ants get trampled. So Stacey is going to make sure that her campaign does not get trampled by a national mishigash. So let's let's just yeah. say one thing. First, we don't have a better communicator in the entire party than Stacey Abrams. We also don't have a better mobilizer in the party than Stacey Abrams. She's going to be able to mobilize national resources and local resources, but she's going to use them in a way that does not give the impression that the national is being imposed on the local. I remember when like folks were trying to like stream in there last time and Stacy put up the dam and said, look, this is what we need. We've got smart people here in Georgia already who are knocking on doors, who are great message people, who are out there like, you know, litigating the case for us. We do need resources. And of course, her opponent then tried to use some of that against her. But let's remember, this race is going to be nationalized for Republicans as well, because Stacey has become something of, you know, she's a superstar for Democrats. She's a lightning rod for Republicans. So national money is going to go in for Republicans as well. And they'll have an equal challenge of trying to like maintain the, the guardrails around all of the excess that comes with national Republican attention right now, when that national Republican Party is dominated by the extremism of Donald Trump. So I'm confident that Stacey, as she demonstrated in that interview, is going to be able to like, you know, use the magic of those national resources in a race that's going to cost tens of millions of dollars, but she's going to do it in a fashion that puts Georgia first. Even on the issue of voting rights, Stacey is not going to be talking about what's happening in other places in the country. She's going to say, look, here in the state of Georgia, if you're in a majority black precinct, on average, you wait 50 minutes to vote. If you're in a majority white precinct, you wait on average six minutes to vote. And now the Republican legislature wants to make it impossible for us to give water to old church ladies who are waiting online. Right. We've got to be better than that here in Georgia. Right. She has that way of making things hyper retail while still elevating to ways that inspire national activity. She she got this. That, that, is, that is one person I, I ain't worried about. Right. Okay. Well, here's somebody a lot of people are worried about, and I mean, including her fans, worried about her from almost every possible angle. Uh, and that's the vice president of the United States, the vice president Harris, who went down to Georgia last week, gave a good speech, got a lot of praise, and then did an interview on COVID stuff with Craig Melvin that was not as well received. I want to play that. And I want to talk about the vice president's political standing on the other side with Patrick. At what point does the administration say, you know what, the strategy isn't working. We're going to change strategies. Six former administration officials last week wrote that open letter urging the administration to change course, to change strategy. Is it time? It is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. Every day it is time for us to agree that there are things and tools that are available to us to slow this thing down. More than one person out there pointed out that she sounded a little like Michael Scott there and, and that the whole interview had like a little bit of a not necessarily the sharpest performance. And she's obviously come in for a lot of criticism from a lot of angles. 
over the course of her time. Someone I've known very well and for a long time and, and have, have very high regard for, I will say. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what you think. I mean, we've both seen vice presidents get the shit kicked out of them yep. in a variety of ways. Republicans and Democrats alike over many, many years. Part of the job. What's your read on her standing and do you know these questions? Is she being poorly served by her staff? Is she being not well served by the White House? What's your just your overall take on whether the vice president has a problem? And if she does have a problem, she wouldn't be the first vice president to have a problem, a political problem, a public perception problem. What might she do about it to better her own prospects and to help the administration more? Every national elected official, every federal elected official right now has a ginormous problem, which is that average Americans have lost trust in our institutions, uh, including the institution of the presidency itself. We've seen that over some time, John. So I don't believe that Kamala Harris has a problem. I think that we have a genuine problem of mistrust of our institutions. That's the first thing. Second thing is I don't believe that she's poorly served by her staff at all. She's got an exceptional chief of staff in, in Tina Flanoy, who's widely respected. And it's just like phenomenal policy person, and great strategist. I think that the vice president just, you know, when, when Joe Biden was vice president of the United States and I was uh, in the West Wing, Joe Biden was given the space to be Joe Biden. There were times where Joe Biden went out there and he said things that got him a little over his skis, got him a little ahead of the president, like when he came out and made a pronouncement on same-sex marriage before the president of the United States could. And we kind of shrugged it off because the president's attitude was, you know what, (laughs) Joe Biden is going to hit more three-point shots than he'll miss. And so let him take his shots and we're going to let this work out. He let Joe Biden be Joe Biden. Patrick, David Pluff wanted to have Joe Biden killed. He took out a contract. Stop, 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 John. I think that Kamala Harris, who I've, like you, I've known for some time, is you know phenomenal communicator and leader. And we have to give her the space to just kind of be the, the joyful warrior that we saw on the campaign trail. That's, that's one thing. The other thing I'm going to say is, look, she is a historic first. This is you know the first... Asian-American, African-American woman elected to that office, the first woman who's been a heartbeat away from the presidency. And let's be like stone cold realists here, John. She is a vice president for somebody who's very advanced in their years. And so the question of being a heartbeat away from the presidency is more elevated now than it's been in the past. And so there's a special laser there, but there's also a, a kind of distortion that we're seeing in media coverage. I've worked in a White House where respectfully, at least every other month, high level staff left Joe Biden's office and went on and took other opportunities. Those were not screaming headlines in Politico and everywhere else. You know, uh, if Kamala Harris loses an intern, I get a text from like <laughs> every White House reporter saying, oh my God, is her office imploding? So there is a double standard here and that needs to be called out. I think that the vice president's going to be fine, but that the West Wing needs to be comfortable with Kamala Harris being given the space to be Kamala Harris. She's been given a pretty tough portfolio on immigration, on voting rights. You know, these are these are not layups. And yet I think that at the end of the day, she's been a great partner to this president and she's going to help him to succeed again in 2024. So let Kamala be Kamala, I guess, is the message here. And chill out with the hand-wringing Democrats. That is uh, <laughs> that's Patrick Gasbird's advice. All right, this is a good place for us to take a break. We're going to pay some bills, and we'll be back with more Helen High Water. We are back with Patrick Gaspard on Helen High Water. And Patrick, I, I want to talk to you about three great seminal iconic, legendary political figures. One, 
Martin Luther King Jr., two, Nelson Mandela, and three, Patrick Gaspard. <laughs> you're, you're, man, you're something, man. I'm funny. I'm <laughs> trying for you, but I didn't say you guys were equivalently great. <laughs> I'm just saying there, there's some, so you both are all icons in your own way. Huh. I want to play, Patrick, uh, they put their little video when you took over it at Cap. After this career that has taken you, you know, through a tour, incredible tour of, of national politics, state politics, local politics, city politics, union politics, done a lot of stuff. And now you're over there at the Center for American Progress, the kind of most important think tank, really, I guess, has become the center of intellectual, political gestation of thought, strategy, tactics, everything. Lay it on, brother. Gestation of thought and strategy. We're going to use that as our byline. Yeah. Tonight. I'm microdosing right now, Patrick. So I'm like <laughs> just on the edge of like a serious mushroom trip. So you'll, these words come out. <laughs> when you took over a cap, yeah. you guys put out a video that was kind of like, hey, here's who Patrick Gaspard is. Let's play that. And we'll talk a little bit about you so people like understand a little bit of the texture. I've never watched this because I can't watch myself. Uh, it embarrasses me to watch myself. Uh, so here oh, here it comes. I was raised uptown in New York. Uh, and uh, I like to think of myself as a true uh, New York nationalist. Starting at around the time I was 16 years old when I cut school to go uh, to demonstrations and I found myself in the orbit of people like Jesse Jackson. And... I dream of a day you will honor the broken promise. Harry Belafonte. For us in the movement, justice was the number one goal. John Lewis. Get in Trevor! At that point, I was hooked uh, and I understood that I would continue the work uh, of organizing, continue the work of lifting up collective voice uh, and believing uh, in the power of ordinary people to do extraordinary things uh, to change the course of history. Man, I just got I just got goosebumps. I mean, you're you're like you're rolling out like the greatest hits there of a bunch of uh, I mentioned Mandela and King and there you've got your ticket off Jesse Jackson and Harry Belafonte and John Lewis. These are all, you know, iconic figures. You know, you work for Jackson, right? I did. I've worked on his uh, 1988 campaign and you know, hearing Harry Belafonte get goosebumps. I was with Mr. B a few weeks ago when the French government gave him the highest award that they award to civilians. And he's like really, at the end of the day, my, my ultimate hero. So it means a lot to, to hear that right now. It's humbling. So I want to talk a little bit in a second about your time as the U.S. ambassador to South Africa, which I think you and I really have never talked about at length. I keep waiting for us to have a chance to really have a conversation about those years you spent over there, because I think it must have been just, you know, transformative and incredible for you and your family. But here's the question, you know, you think about that legacy that you're citing, you're talking about like the people that inspired you, some of whom you have worked with, some of you have just gotten to know, you know, like Belafonte, right? Yeah. You know, you, you met before you went to South Africa, back when he was still alive, you had a couple of encounters with Mandela. I mean, I could rattle off the list of prominent, particularly prominent politicians of color, not just in, in New York, nationally and internationally. I've been a lucky guy. Just talk about all of those influences as you did in that video in a little more detail. Like if you think about the stew, that stew you've been in your whole professional career, what's the flavor of it like that has come together? You're now someone who's had a chance to marinate in that stuff for a long time and have it shape your worldview and your politics now that you sit in this position of prominence and authority and influence at the cap, mm. how do you like sort of say, this is how all the flavors rhyme for me, all of these influences, these people I've mm. met, worked with, studied from, been at the knee of, how does it all kind of come together for you in terms of how you think about the world and how to make progress and change happen? Well, the example of Nelson Mandela is the Uber influence uh, and Madiba 
used to always talk about the need for servant leaders, right? So for me, when I think about the blessed journey that I've had being taken under the wing of really some insanely exceptional people, it's clear to me that they were all folks who were willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for the greater good of their people, of community, their nations, and the world. And this notion of servant leadership really for me as the driving ethos. There's a powerful humility in that, right? It's saying that if you're going to take on this responsibility, you have to be clear always what the mission is and who you are in service to. So for me, every role that I've been in, I always try to keep close to myself a sense of who I'm trying to deliver for, what are the stories that animate this moment and the decisions that I'm making. Because John, I will tell you, as somebody who worked as a 19-year-old for the first Black mayor of the city of New York, who worked for the first African-American president in the White House, who got to serve as a U.S. ambassador in a country that I've always cared about and carried this highfalutin title, it is so easy to get swept up in a sense of power, in a sense of your own agency, and to forget the umbilical that ties you to this history and what it is that you're trying to deliver for. I'll tell you a quick anecdote that, for me, is always a reminder and always stays with me. I remember in 2008, two weeks from Election Day, I got sick and tired of sitting in Chicago. The president, the then candidate Obama was flying around the country doing the blitz and it was becoming pretty clear. This was after John McCain had messed up on the economy and messed up on Sarah Palin. It was becoming pretty clear that we just might win this thing. I traveled with him, we're doing like five cities in a day. We get off a plane in Missouri and we go to downtown St. Louis for a rally. He's dog tired at that point. We get there down to the downtown plaza, Mississippi River, close by, the arch close to us. He takes the stage and looks out. He bounds up, looks out, and there are over 100,000 people in the plaza. He gets that charge of energy. He does the Obama thing. And I'm watching him, not as a campaign staffer, but as a student of history. Uh, And I'm seeing this black man talking to 100,000 Americans of every stripe, every youth from every place. And I'm looking over his head At 150 yards in the distance, John, I can see the golden dome of the St. Louis courthouse where I know 150 years in the past, the Dred Scott decision came down that said that African-Americans could never be seen as full people and full citizens. So 150 yards in the distance, 150 years back in history, but he is connected, I am connected to that journey, and I understand that winning the bloody campaign is not the end-all and the be-all. But that one has to deliver on that promise in, in a servant leader way that is true to the history of struggle and makes clear that we have to not pull up the ladder, but push down the ladder even further so others can climb up. So that's the thread that runs through it all for me. I am my father's son. I am my mother's son who both had to leave their country because of a U.S.-backed dictator who put his junta in place. And so my father had to leave a country where he hoped to build his own democracy, immigrate here to the U.S. and instilled in his children the need to make sure that we were always connected to diaspora, but that we also never took for granted the liberties that we had here and the investment that we had to make and the sacrifices that we had to make to shore up the future of liberty for others who were less privileged. So that's the stream for me. You said, you know, in the end, Mandela is really the lodestar of all lodestars, right? Yep. And I think that's 
it's just hard really for people to, I think, get their head around even now. I mean, even for, for those of us who are our age, right? We watch these things unfold and the notion of, of Mandela, you know, was in prison for 27 years and that, you know, apartheid was never going to change and he was going to die in prison. And then he wasn't there and then it changed. And then he came out and he became, he became the president of the country. That's right. And turned out to not just be kind of a secular saint, but an incredibly good politician. And all of that stuff happened and we watched it all happen. And it's just, he's almost sui generis. I mean, there have been incredible figures in our lifetime that we've seen. But I don't think there's really a story that's more remarkable than the story of what happened in South Africa and what happened with Mandela under its his leadership. Yes. And I, I say it all as a preamble to saying yes. the fact that you got to go there because of the fact that you got connected with the first African-American president of the United States because under Barack Obama's auspices that you got to go there is I, I think it must be just a thing that You've reflected on enormously, and and then you were there for three years, I guess. Yes. A long run for an ambassador. I want to play one thing, and then I want to I hear you talk about Mandela and what it was like to be in post-Mandela South Africa, right? Mm-hmm. He dies in 2013, right around the time that you ended up becoming ambassador. Mm-hmm. You know, Barack Obama went over there and spoke at the memorial. But the thing that I think sets him apart and the thing that people least expected, probably of, of all the things Mandela accomplished, was when he took the attitude that he took towards truth and reconciliation in the country. Mm-hmm. He'd been in prison for 27 years. Yes. You know, and people thought, man, this guy's going to come out. They've stolen 27 years of his life. Apartheid's still in place. Rage, fury, anger. But no, he didn't have any of those things. And then he became president and there was no retribution against whites. There was instead this movement, either this thing unprecedented in the history of humanity, the truth and reconciliation movement. I want to hear Mandela talk about that. And then I want to talk about what that left to South Africa that you found when you got there. Ordinary South Africans are determined that the past be known. The better to ensure that it is not repeated. They seek this not out of vengeance, but so that we can move into the future together. The choice of our nation is not whether the past should be revealed, but rather to ensure that it comes to be known in a way which promotes reconciliation and peace. So, Patrick, that's, you know, not the most soaring of many more soaring speeches, many more emotional speeches. But I don't think that he accomplished anything more radical, revolutionary or transformative than this attitude that he adopted, which was to say, we are going to tell the truth about the past. And anybody who is willing to embrace a non apartheid South Africa will be welcome here and there will be no retribution. There will be no revenge. And that. I think, you know, you can tell me as you got there, what was the legacy of Mandela as you encountered it in the years you were there representing the United States of America? So, wow. Uh, I just, uh, just, just hearing that again just kind of blows, blows me away. So, you know, Nelson Mandela once said that holding on to resentment is like drinking poison and thinking that it's going to destroy your enemy and not yourself. Uh, extraordinary figure. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission is something that's a little understood. We in the U.S. talk a lot about the TRC in the sense that, you know, it's interesting. Young South Africans believe that Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu were too quick to forgive and didn't make a proper dispensation for economic outcomes in the future. I think that we forget the circumstances that he inherited and what he had to turn around in that country when you had 85% of the nation not allowed basic provisions, health care, education, et cetera. That has been turned around. 
it was demoralizing to a certain extent to visit places in South Africa that I first visited in 1991 when I first went to uh, the country and saw that a lot of the structural architecture of apartheid was still in place, where black South Africans were still living further away from the centers of the economy than white South Africans were, where you had a very small minority controlling overwhelming percentages of the land in the country, which made it difficult to have legacy wealth. So I think that there is a misimpression that's left today that he didn't agitate enough for justice against his jailers, new economic determination in the country. It was frustrating for me to have visited the site where mine workers were 25 years ago and to see not enough improvement in their lives. But it was also extraordinary to see as a consequence of policies, his conviction and the vision that young black South Africans now were in places like the University of Cape Town, the University of Witzvatistan, that where I first visited and there was not a single young black South Africans, black South Africans on the floor of their uh, stock exchange. And if you see what happened recently where South Africa demonstrated that they have the leading epidemiologists on the planet. They were the first ones to identify Omicron. And unfortunately, that led to travel bans because there was a misunderstanding of the sophistication of their ability to detect these variants as a result of resources and investments that we've brought to bear. Huge transformation in the country. And that happened not just because of the vision of one leader, but because you had an entire society that was prepared not to sit in violent revenge, but to work together for a mutually beneficent future. That was not an easy thing to achieve there at all. It could have easily gone off the rails. Yes. They have their challenges 20 years in, 25 years in. But, yes. you know, let's remember, you know, I always say this to, to, to my friends uh, elsewhere and my friends in South Africa, 20 years in, 30 years in, 100 years in, U.S. democracy didn't look all that great either. Right. It took civil war, amendments to our constitution, a massive all-encompassing movement in this country for us to begin to get it right and to become more inclusive. They're going to need a little bit more time, but they're making strides. You know, we were recording this this interview before Martin Luther King Day. The podcast will come out the day after Martin Luther King Day. So they, there'll be a, a lot of people will have heard a lot of Martin Luther King oratory right before they hear this podcast. But you know, a lot of famous speeches that Martin Luther King gave. The one that always sticks in my mind, though, is not one of the most famous ones, one that he laid out late in his life, his kind of notion of two Americas, that there were these two Americas. And it was when he made the shift from the formal civil rights and voting rights phase of his career towards the economic justice phase of his career. And it's a powerful speech. We'll play a little bit of it here. There are literally two Americas. One America is beautiful, and in a sense, this America is overflowing with the milk of prosperity and the honey of opportunity. Tragically and unfortunately, there is another America. This other America has a daily ugliness about it that constantly transforms the buoyancy of hope into the fatigue of despair. In this America, people are poor by the millions, and they find themselves perishing on a lonely island of poverty, 
in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. You know, after being in South Africa and in a place where there was, you know, here's Nelson Mandela, closest thing there is to a secular saint in our politics. And in America, the version of that is King, right? Yes. Another figure now revered, very controversial when he was alive, took a long time to get to the point where he became um, universally beloved by everyone. Sometimes people don't understand him very well. A lot of conservatives. Dr. King was underwater in the polling uh, at the time yes. that he died. <laughs> well, and, you know, was seen as a radical and was seen as a communist and was seen as all kinds of things. And, and yep. many of the conservatives who like him now really don't understand him. For one thing, they just misinterpreted a lot of what he says and appropriate what he says and, and mangle it. But I guess my question for you is the thing at the bottom of both of these guys was a profound optimism, you know, about the prospects for progress. Mandela comes out of prison after 27 years and is still optimistic about the future of South Africa and still thinks you can get it done. The road to freedom is long, but, you know, we're going to we're going to march down it. King lived in American apartheid. And the night before he dies, he's talking about how we will get to the promised land. Right. Yep. And the, always the arc of the moral universe is long, but bends towards justice. It's the same as the long march to freedom. They're talking about the same stuff. Yep. But at the end of that road, they have a great degree of optimism. I mentioned those two things because I saw this speech you gave where you talked about a very troubling conversation you had with one of your kids about them basically looking up and going, I don't want to be an American. Yeah. And I want you to bring these threads together about how you maintain that kind of Mandela King optimism about the country in the face. How do you explain that to your child? You can tell the story, if you want, of your son, I believe, saying like, I'm not an American. I don't want to be an American, given what America has become. Talk about that. Uh, you're right about how Dr. King is, is uh, mis misinterpreted and we've forgotten all about that kind of justice stuff. You know, Dr. King once said that Negroes have benefited from a limited change that was emotionally satisfying, but materially deficient. Jobs are harder to create than voting rolls, right? That's what he said pretty late in his life. So there was that sense of frustration and, and dream not delivered. So the speech that you're referring to is when I received the Springarn Medal from the NAACP, which is the highest award that the NAACP uh, issues. Uh, in it, I talked about citizenship and how Black people in America who have been denied citizenship have to affirmatively claim it in every instance. And, and you know, we have to give the evidence of our citizenship, unfortunately, in a two-tiered system. But there is also a way that so much has been sacrificed for us that how dare we not radically claim it and use it for community and for common good. And so that's the conversation that I was describing uh, within my own uh, family at the time. And I think that applies uh, in this moment when democracy is imperiled, when citizenship itself is being questioned. I think that, you know, you, you talk about radical optimism. Everywhere I go, John, most offices that I work, I always put up this lithograph that I have, not of Dr. King and not of Nelson Mandela, but the person who I think is the greatest American to have ever lived, and that's Frederick Douglass, right? So I think Frederick Douglass's uh, history is just extraordinary. This guy who's self-emancipated. Frederick Douglass said that he prayed for 20 years for his freedom, and that freedom never came until he learned how to pray with his own feet. <laughs> so <laughs> for me, that's like, man, that's an organizer. So I think, um, you know, Frederick Douglass throughout his life, 
maintained a radical optimism about what was possible. He lived at a time, came up through slavery, uh, came up on the other end of, of that. And towards the end of his life, he serves as the U.S. ambassador to Haiti. And he turns all of his energies towards the suffragist movement and the, and the need for women uh, right. in America to get the right to vote. Because he understood that we're all in this damn ship together uh, and we needed to raise the waters for all. But throughout all of it, despite the darkness, he was always moving moving towards a light. Uh, and I every day I look up and I think about Frederick Douglass and I say, you know what? If Fred could get through the circumstances that he could get through, we could certainly get through the challenge of cinema and mansion and the filibuster and all these other things that pale in comparison uh, to the thickets that they that folks like that had to run through. You mentioned the Spring Garden speech and you said, I mean, the story you told, you said, you know, that your, that your son had said to you, and the phrase you said plainly and plaintively, I can't be in America. Yeah. You see, my beautiful American-born son, my brilliant American-born daughter, this pearl of great price is not yours cast aside. That's, you know, and you may, you're making the point for why they must fight for their citizenship and so on. But I guess my question is, just as a yeah, just wholly human level, how hard is it to maintain a sense of optimism about this experiment when your son is saying, I can't be in America. That's not about mansion and cinema, bud. You know that. It's about something much deeper going yeah. on. And it's hard to maintain the faith, John. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna lie to you or to your your listeners. It is um, hard to see my kids having to organize against uh, the the kinds of things that I thought we had put to rest, or, or that uh, you know, you, you just wonder what past sacrifice uh, was for. When one wakes up and you see the Confederate flag being paraded through the halls of Congress in 2021, and then you see uh, elected leadership celebrating that and applauding that, you realize what kind of proximity we, we have to the worst kind of violent hatred that could end up uh, costing me the things that I hold the dearest in this world. <laughs> yeah, it is uh, obviously incredibly fucked up. Um, that we are still dealing with these issues and the kinds of feelings they inspire for you and not just you and a lot of other people too in 2022. But, you know, uh, we will all, as Jesse Jackson liked to say, try to keep hope alive here. And uh, if there's a reason to do that, it's because there are people out there uh, like you, Patrick, fighting the good fight. Let's take a break uh, right now and we'll come back and talk about what the future looks like for voting rights, for the Democratic Party, and more with Patrick Gaspard here on Hell on High Water. And we're back with Patrick Gaspard on Hell on High Water. Patrick, I mentioned before the break that uh, I wanted to talk about voting rights. And on the night after Biden spoke in Atlanta, you guys at CAP held a virtual event where you spoke with, interviewed, uh, in a sense, Chuck Schumer. Uh, I want to play a little sound from that right now. We know that you are a no-holds-barred fighter and champion for these two bills, but we also know what the rules of the Senate are. What's the plan here? So it is now apparent that we will get no Republican support, none. And we'll need Manchin and Sinema to go along. Thus far, they haven't, but we'll we're in still in intense discussions, but we're keeping at it and keeping at it and keeping at it because it's too important. And then a little later in your conversation, Schumer made some news, a little tiny bit of news, uh, at least kind of put a kind of clear stake in the ground when he said this uh, about voting rights legislation and filibuster reform and their timing. The end of January is about the end of the time. 
before it will be too late. So we have to act now. And then what happened was Mansion and Cinema, despite Joe Biden going to Capitol Hill, despite yep. all of all these behind the scenes conversations, all the stuff that Schumer was doing, all the stuff that everyone was trying. I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying there was a lot of effort. Full court press. Biden goes to Atlanta. He comes back up. He goes to the Hill. He talks to them. They bring Mansion and Cinema to the White House. Mansion and Cinema are like, fuck you. We're not moving an inch. And Mansion's like yep. now further, I would say back to I will not get rid of the filibuster. I will not substantially change the filibuster. I will not reform the filibuster. I'm not doing anything to the filibuster, right? So Chuck now, Schumer says, on Tuesday, the day this podcast appears, we will take up voting rights legislation. Everyone in Washington thinks that it will be filibustered by Republicans. Mm -hmm. The filibuster will not be broken. And then we will move on to filibuster reform, which we now know, given Manchin and Cinema, is going nowhere. Is there anything about what I just said? Again, casting no blame or aspersions. Is that, is that not an accurate statement of the state of play? I think that the NFL should hire you to be a play-by-play man. You know, that is exactly what happened on the playing field, John. I guess uh, it was too much to, to ask that Senator Cinema would allow the president of the United States, the president of her party, to come and have a conversation with her and other right. senators before making that pronouncement. That was not anti anticipated, right? Right. Somebody once said that a game of chess is like a sword fight. You must think before you move. And clearly she played a move that was cutting, right? So let's be clear, John, that despite everything that you described, that's absolutely perfect. I think that Senator Schumer is still right in demanding that Democrats and Republicans alike have to stand up there in the Senate and be counted for the ages on this issue, even if we think that it all blows up around filibuster reform, right? You know, we've been down this road before. In July of 1963, Dr. King spoke out against the filibuster while President Kennedy was trying to push through civil rights uh, legislation, and he said, I think the tragedy is that uh, we have a Congress uh, with a Senate that has a minority of misguided senators who will use the filibuster to keep the majority of people from even voting. They won't let the majority senators vote. And certainly they wouldn't want the majority of people to vote because they know they do not represent the majority of the American people. In fact, they represent in their own states a very small minority. The filibuster has been reformed multiple times in, in this democracy, yeah. 1917, yep. 1975, again, 2017 by Republicans, right? So we know that irrespective of what, you know, the, the academic lesson that Senator Cinema tried to give all of us, we know that, you know, this is not something that's enshrined in the Constitution. This is not something that's etched in marble. Uh, and it right. is simply a political tool that has been used and abused in the past mostly to block civil rights legislation, and it's being done again today. So everything you just described is right, but right. that's not an argument against Senator Schumer's strategy to get everyone no, to no. have to stand up and be counted. I was not suggesting it was. I was only suggesting that that you and I, clear-eyed assessors and analysts of politics, yep. and look, Joe Biden kind of kind of more or less admitted this the other day on camera when he said, I don't know if we're going to get it done this time. Maybe we'll have to come back and try it again. We've tried yeah. to do it with civil rights legislation. You often have to come back for a second bite at the apple. Again, just I'm setting a baseline here because I'm going to ask you what to do about it. But the baseline is like right now it's dead, right? The things we're doing, the things that Schumer's doing are to get people on the record. They're about history. They're about moral suasion. They're about, you know, they, he's going to push everyone, right? But as we, we can do math here, and we're not living in fantasy land, the reality is that this thing is effectively dead right now. And the question for Democrats, like Joe Biden in particular, is 
what to say and do about it in the run up to the midterms in the run-up to 2024. I mean, what Democrats need is more votes in the United States Senate, Patrick. That's what they need. They need more senators. If they had more senators, <laughs> we, um, we, needed, would, we needed Cal Cunningham to be on his best behavior in North Carolina. <laughs> right. That's what we needed. But I'm not wrong about this, right? It's dead, basically, right now. John, 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 I mean, let's just be clear here. I'm going to say a couple of things that, that may stun you here, but mm. you're talking to somebody who has two points of history to offer. One, I was yep. the political director in a White House where the health care bill was given up for dead, not once, not twice, but six times, right, where I was in interviews like this and people were saying things to me like, well, you know, that thing is dead, right, because this senator or that House member made this public pronouncement is 100% dead. Don't you agree? I didn't agree then. I'm not agreeing now. So I, I have the experience that even when things are uphill, you have an opportunity. And then beyond that, John, I'm having this conversation with you as a... A, a black man in America who appreciates the radical progress that's uh, been made in my lifetime, in your lifetime on these issues. We have the long arc of history uh, on our side. We understand that the filibuster was used to block anti-lynching bills in 1922 and in 1935, and again, the Civil Rights Act in 1965. And yet, despite the use of the filibuster in those moments, we still managed to make progress, enact laws, and make whole the union, or at least get it closer to being whole and uh, inclusive. So both as a former political director in a White House, who won when we were told that we were going to lose, uh, right. and as a, a Black man who has seen some stuff in his day and appreciates the arc of history, uh, I'm not going to agree with you that this moment is dead and that it's not possible for the president for the Senate and for Congress to figure out some path to some measure of reform. Senator okay. Schumer said himself when he introduced his strategy that it was an uphill battle. Senator Sinema right. just turned an uphill battle to Sisyphus, where we're pushing the stone right. up the hill and the stone's rolling right back at right. us, but we're gonna dust ourselves off uh, and push that rock uh, up uh, the hill again, uh, and we'll see what happens after Tuesday. Well, okay, I accept all that, obviously, and, I, and you're making fine points. I think that you may be, maybe in, in a, if I had you on sodium pentothal, I think I might be able to get you closer to, yeah, it's dead, uh, <laughs> that, you, that you're currently willing to say currently in your current state on the air. But here's what I'd ask you, right? What I'd ask you is, for those of us who, who think this is essential, right? Yep. You just invoked a number of your many positions that have given you as much insight into how politics actually works as someone who, you know, you even talked about your your history as in New York politics, but just in the White House, you were a political director on the Obama campaign in 2008. You were in the White House at a key moment. You were at the DNC at a key moment as an executive director there. Like, you know how all this works, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, we, you know, we're going to push the rock up the hill. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Yeah. I hear activists, your friends in the activist community, I had Ensei Ufot on, on MSNBC the day before the speech, and I said, what do you want to hear from Joe Biden? And she said, I don't really care what Joe Biden says. We're past speeches. We want marching orders. We want a plan. So I ask you now, if I'm to believe that there might be a path, that something could happen, that we have to push the rock back up the hill, we have to somehow figure it out, right? If you're 
the political director in the White House or the legislative director or, you know, whatever. Or why are you? I gave you Ron Klain's job for, for about. No, thank you. For the rest of January. Well, for the right amount of money, you take it. If I give you that job <laughs> and I said, I said, Patrick, we need a plan. Here's the story with Mansion Cinema. Here's the state of play. John Hellman just like laid it all out like John Madden laid it all diagram the whole thing out. But you you think there might be some way to like thread the needle. Patrick, what's the plan? What should we do? Yeah, I, I, you know, I always believe there's a way to thread the, the needle, no matter how hard it looks. And if you're in two-minute offense here, you have to appreciate that it's Arizona or bust, right? We've got a senator who stands up and on principle says she can't support the filibuster. Vote has not been cast yet. And if there is some way to get this thing turned around, it's got to be turned around by my activist friends in Arizona, my political friends in Arizona who know that the Freedom to Vote Act would prohibit, they'd have to convince their fellow partisans in the states that now is a moment to like push hard the message that the Freedom to Vote Act is going to prohibit the state from providing ballots and other election materials to phony private auditors without supervision of election officials. They have to drive home the fact that the act prevents the state from removing 150,000 voters from its permanent early voting list for failing to cast a ballot in every election. They have to help folks who are close to Kristen Cinema, both her, you know, her kitchen cabinet, her donors, the the voters who are with her, who she has not had a town hall with in, in the time that she's been elected to the Senate, they have to help them carry these messages in a forceful way, in a way that's leveraged and in a way that might tip the balance with that senator. I'm saying this, John, not because I think it's easy, not because I see uh, with a kind of clarity that I have some kind of an epiphany about what moves Senator Cinema. But we have seen with both Mansion and with Cinema, we have seen movement from them on some issues, right? We saw movement from Cinema, some of the revenue issues on Build Back Better after there was constituent pressure in uh, Arizona. We saw Joe Manchin persuaded by his fellow mountaineers uh, in Virginia that perhaps it was time to move past the, the blockage of cloture in order to have a full debate on the Senate floor. So we've seen each of them move at times when we were told that they would not move at all. So you've got to play some kind of a card in Arizona, in Maricopa County. But you have to, of course, understand that the odds are clearly against you here. You just talked about cinema, right? I mean, how do you advise, again, as a person of profound progressive principles and also a person who's been a, a pretty hardcore political operative who understands at the national level, the local level, the state level in New York, where like hardball politics is like the name of the game, like you're not a, a fantasist or someone who lives in, in the world of rose colored glass. What do you tell Democrats to think about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema? You know, I mean, I, I get the point is often made, you know, without Joe Manchin, you don't have 50 votes in the United States Senate. And, with, and Joe Manchin may be the only Democrat who could win in West Virginia. Yep. When you talk to your friends, like, should Democrats be mad at those guys? Would they want them out of the party? Should they like what's I the think, right way? I, I think right now all Democrats should definitely be pissed off at anybody who's standing in the door of getting voting rights done. They should be pissed off at anyone who's uh, standing in the way of getting the president's Build Back Better bill done. So yeah, they should be, a, yeah. folks are right to be frustrated. They're right even to be angry, but you know, that anger has to be turned and calibrated into some kind of a strategy, John, and you're not yeah. gonna move either mansion or cinema with, with anger. I'm not going to speak about cinema because I, you know, I don't know Senator Cinema in the way that I know Joe Manchin, right? I, I worked right. with Joe Manchin when he was in the governor's mansion in West Virginia, worked with him as a, a U.S. senator 
when he was uh, first elected, when he was putting a target on the Obamacare bill. And I had to call him to say, Senator, what are you doing to us, right? And he's a former secretary of state who I know really cares about voting rights. But I also know that he's in a state that, you know, Donald Trump carried by like a, a gap of 40 percentage points. I have door knocked in West Virginia. Uh, and I know that my New York progressivism ain't going to sell there. So I understand where Joe Manchin's uh, coming from, but I also know that he is somebody who actually does care deeply about equity. He really does. That is an authentic concern of his. He wants to make sure that everybody can get to the starting gate with some kind of a fair shot of maybe finishing the race. Those are genuine things for Joe Manchin. I'm taking him at his word on Build Back Better that he's worried about inflation and deficits. And I think that there are thoughtful ways to make the arguments, help him understand how these investments are for the future and lower economic strife in this country. And on voting rights with Joe Manchin, you know, I am not somebody who prays at the altar of bipartisanship. I think that there is a a problematic religiosity that we talk about uh, bipartisanship with in, in our media. But I'm going to respect uh, Joe Manchin's inclination towards that and remind him and demonstrate to him that right now, today, in a partisan way, in state after state, Republicans are passing bills that thwart his own ambitions for building a more inclusive, participatory society. So I'm going to take him at his word. I'm going to meet him where he's at. And I'm going to look like, you know, we're going to have a Venn diagram of the things that I hope for and wish for in voting rights and the things that Joe Manchin is prepared to support. Uh, And then we're going to like focus like a laser beam in Build Back Better and on voting rights on the things that sit neatly in that Venn diagram space. And on filibuster reform, I think it's possible to make progress with Joe Manchin because he has publicly and privately said that he understands that it is a barrier. He has concerns about making a shift, but he can look at elements of reform there. Senator Sinema is more of a puzzle uh, for me, both because I don't have the history and because, frankly, she has spoken out of both sides of her mouth on this issue. She is on camera being incredibly, you know, and speaking in really pejorative terms about the filibuster and laying out the history, the racialized history of it. So it's difficult to reconcile that Kristen Cinema with the person who stood up and read this speech uh, on principle about how taking the filibuster apart would lead to disunity in the Senate, as if there's unity in the Senate today. It was a yeah. bizarre performance for me. Let's stay in this, in this political moment for a second, because you, when we started talking about Biden and you rattled off a bunch of his accomplishments, and yeah. I was just wanting to talk about voting rights, but you kind of went to the larger questions that, that are out there right now. And, you know, we think that filibuster reform, we both, you know, the, you, you've been very outspoken about the need for filibuster reform, doesn't seem like it's very likely to happen given the numbers. We all both think voting rights reform is very important. It doesn't seem likely to happen, you know, by the end of January. Maybe there'll be a Hail Mary immaculate reception, but not that likely. So now Democrats, you know, there's a perception right now that I know you, you know, you see every day and you hear from every day from Democrats, people in the party, from the left, from the moderate wing of the party, from the business wing of the party, from donors. Everybody's like in a chicken little state about Joe Biden right now. They think Build Back Better is stalled. The, the word stalled for the Biden agenda. He's gone up to Capitol Hill a bunch of times, hasn't brought anything back. Voting rights not going to happen. Filibuster reform not going to happen. Build Back Better seems increasingly like it's not going to happen. Inflation numbers are up. COVID is still with us. 
Omicron's been a You're nightmare. depressing me, John. You're depressing but me, that, man. But, but this is the conventional wisdom, though. And look, this is not just conventional wisdom on cable news for anybody who's going to say that. This is what you hear from Democratic congressmen and congresswomen who are looking at the midterms and going, man, yes, we think Joe Biden did a great job with COVID relief at the beginning, but there's been problems with the messaging. There's been problems with the testing. There's been problems with a lot of things of late. It has not gone that well, and the administration has sort of admitted it, and COVID's at the center of so much. And you here, Democrats looking at all across this waterfront, Democrats, mm-hmm. elected Democrats, people have to run for re-election in 2022. Patrick, you know who these people are. And they're like, man, we are in a bad place. And you said a thing earlier where you said it's not quite as bad as the polling suggests, but you know, okay, do I think Joe Biden's at a 33% approval rating as Quinnipiac had him? I don't. But I, I know you hear from Democrats every day who are freaking out right now yeah. about what's going to yeah. happen to them yeah. in November. What's your assessment of where things stand politically for this White House, for the party, and what they need to now do between now and November to avert a bloodbath? So you just said Democrats freaking out, and then you listed all those other things, John, and you know, Democrats freaking out is kind of like a natural state of affairs. <laughs> There's a, you know, in the, in the best of times, Democrats are convinced that somehow the sky is going to fall in against us. You know, I, I remember when we were trying to reelect President Obama. And there were all these ridiculous stories about how maybe Hillary Clinton needed to replace him on the ticket. And there was no way that he could win with uh, unemployment at near double digits. Joe Biden is running with unemployment at historic lows. He has an economy that Democrats just have to bloody claim that is going gangbusters with the exception of this one little thorny thing of inflation, which we all know is tied completely to the the consequences we're going through with the pandemic. But, you know, I listed three numbers to you before, John, and, and these are three numbers that I am repeating incessantly to all my Democratic friends, elected officials, donors, et cetera. 200 million, 6 million, and 50. What are those numbers? Over 200 million shots in arms, fully vaccinated Americans in the Joe Biden year. We have 6 million new jobs in the Biden economy. We have childhood poverty reduced by 50% over the past year as a consequence of the stimulus. These are huge consequential things. We have a bipartisan infrastructure bill that is going to make a huge difference in Montana, in New York, and in states in between. There are ways that every single Democrat whose name is going to be on the ballot, Senate and in the House, are going to have things at a national level and in a hyper-local way that they're going to be able to speak to about what Joe Biden and the Democratic majority have been able to accomplish. And then they're going to have another thing that they have working for them, John. Uh, And I know that everybody says that Terry McAuliffe made a mistake in Virginia by harping on Donald Trump. I get it in that environment and what he needed to do. But let's be real here. The specter of Donald Trump has not gone away. We have Republicans who are going to foreclose options for themselves in a general election in the fall of this year because of their clingingness to the Trump extremes. They're going to foreclose opportunities with suburbanites, with independent voters. Joe Biden during the campaign was fond of saying, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. So I remind donors that when our candidates are running in the fall, they are going to be compared to the alternative. And you're going to have extreme Trumpists who adhere to the big lie who, you know, who support violent insurrectionists, who lift up wacky conspiracies about election outcomes, about vaccines, et cetera, that they're going to be running against. And that's going to give us, I think, more than a fair shake 
uh, at being able to uh, capture these seats and maintain a majority. So stop freaking out, speak to the successes, recognize where there are guardrails and, and, and limits on that success, be it on voting rights or some of the things that we're trying to make sure we get done on climate, on the care economy, on the child tax credit. Right. We, we may succeed on those, but, you know, those may be blunted by Senator Manchin and others. But be really sober about those while being triumphant about the success and not apologetic about the success. You know, again, clear eyed realists here. We know what the historical trends are. We know how tough it is for a sitting presidents in their midterm. We saw what happened to Barack Obama in 2010. We saw what happened to Donald Trump. It's, uh, it's what happened to every president it, it, except it, for like George uh, Bush when he had the uh, Iraq war rare, numbers and you know. Very rare. Very yeah. rare. So, so historical headwinds and then there's these other things that we know about. But you're saying you think that at this moment that the numbers that have Democrats freaking out You gave the numbers that you think they should be billboarding, but that the numbers in their polling that they're seeing, that the numbers that they see when they look at, at the president's job approval rating, when they look at all these other numbers that are making Democrats, particularly in vulnerable seats, very nervous right now, you're basically saying, guys... It's not as bad as it looks right now, and we still have plenty of time. And I, again, I don't want to say you're being a false optimist, but you're basically kind of saying you think the conventional wisdom right now, and I mean conventional wisdom again among Democrats, yeah. of woe is me, doom and gloom. You think that that is overstated and people should get a grip. I'm not a conventional wisdom kind of guy. Conventional yeah. wisdom keeps people like me from uh, the kind of positions that I'm in right now, John. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah, I'm so not a conventional wisdom guy. And I think yeah. that yeah. the conventional wisdom is always freaking out. And I I think that we put too much stock in polling when we know that the American polling system is freaking broken, right? Like the Quinnipiac poll that you just cited, use random yeah. digit dialing. It's just, right. It just makes no sense whatsoever. And I would say there's plenty of time left here on the clock. There's not a lot of time left on the clock to get Build Back Better and voting rights done. There's not a lot of time on that, but there's plenty of time to go out there, get local and to like sell the Biden economy, right. the Biden response to the right. pandemic that's gotten hundreds of millions of Americans vaccinated to such an extent that now we can reopen even with a, a new variant uh, in the world. And they have to get out there and trumpet the bipartisan success that they've had on getting shovels in the ground and new folks hired to build scaffolding uh, in our community around our faulty infrastructure. Those are real things. And there's plenty of time to go out and have that conversation. But there's not a lot of time to do that and you're running out the clock if everybody just stands around staring in their navel uh, and seeing that as the center of the universe. Got to get out there collectively on a message uh, and to fight these people tooth and nail where they live. That is uh, some very wise counsel from a very wise man and something that Democrats might want to consider uh, as they think about their electoral strategy heading into November. And I want to thank Patrick Gaspar for joining me here on Hell and High Water and thank all of you for listening. Helen High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Patrick Gaspard for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Helen High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Helen High Water. Aliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro Russell, that man our executive producer. 